Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Due to the urgency of time, I want to get right to this. Our interview of the day on Iraq, certainly. And of course, Stephen A. Cook with the Council on Foreign Relations and Foreign Policy earlier this week, stopping the debate with John Farrow. There is nothing left for Americans to do in Iraq. It was an extraordinary essay. And lost in the drama of the events this week and the clouds of tensions between the United States and Iran, a jetliner, the crash, the Ukrainian jetliner crash that Tehran insists was not shot down, putting at odds with Canada, the UK and Australia as well. Joining us now to discuss is Stephen Cook, CFR Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies. Stephen, let's start there. The next steps in this investigation with Iran and the rest of the world. Well, it is uh, shocking that a relatively brand new plane would just fall out of the sky. I, I think it's obviously, I'm not an aviation expert, but the aviation experts I read say, it's uh, early to tell, but there really needs to be a thorough investigation because it is quite odd. Uh, as I said, a, a relatively new airplane just falling out of the sky. Stephen, can you walk through what the consequences are as we watch these tensions build with uh, Iran accusing Western governments of engaging in, quote, psychological warfare and President Trump saying, well, you know, I have my suspicions. What's the potential political and energy uh, interpolitics uh, fallout from this incident? Well, it, it, it certainly is the case that the Iranians are going to deny that they ever did anything like this. If it, is, if it was shot down, they'll say it, that they didn't do it. Um, but it does raise tensions uh, in the region. And even though the Iranians have signaled and the president has signaled that they want to de-escalate after the Iranian missile attack on, uh, on American forces in Iraq, um, this type of thing could encourage either governments uh, or uh, Iran's proxies uh, to take action against the United States. The words, the United States is engaging in psychological warfare, is not de-escalating uh, a potential conflict. It's actually raising tensions once again. Stephen, Iran has been on the receiving end of a tragedy like this in 1988, when the U.S. military accidentally shot down a, an Iranian airliner. And that event has been used at the epicenter of propaganda effort for the last several decades by the Iranian regime. And I just wonder, Stephen, what that means for that propaganda effort, if indeed this was Iran that shot down this airline. Well, uh, it is an astonishing irony. I should note that the, the, the narrative about the downing of that Iranian uh, plane over the Persian Gulf in the late 80s is, uh, is a, a, a disputed one, and that the Navy's own investigation did point to uh, problems with the captain of the ship that shot down that plane. But uh, if the Iranians did do this, the Iranian people certainly will never know that it was uh, something that the Iranians did and not a, a mechanical failure of this uh, of this Boeing airplane. Steven, so, uh, go ahead. No, just uh, if, so in other words, uh, that is sort of uh, remains to be seen. But, but fast forwarding, I'm trying to understand uh, right now in markets, there is a perception that tensions are over. They have dissipated. Even this is viewed as somewhat minor in the scheme of geopolitical relations. I'm trying to understand what we should be watching to determine a true flare up that could uh, impact uh, global uh, economic growth, among other things. Yeah, this is a concern. I think people are getting lulled into a sense of security. The crisis is now over. Iran has proxy uh, groups all over the Middle East and, in fact, all over the world who can continue uh, to uh, 
go after Americans or American targets. Um, certainly, the uh, the firing of the missiles was a big, spectacular yeah. show that was really dedicated to, towards the Iraq, uh, Iranian people. Um, but I don't believe that the Iranians are really actually done in terms of retaliation for the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Stephen Cook, the charm of your work is your on-the-ground research is expressed in False Dawn, your wonderful uh, book. If we are in Baghdad, but we're up against all these regional issues, do we become the U.S. in Baghdad literally in an island where Iran takes over all of the spirit of the of the nation on the Tigris and the Euphrates. I mean, do we basically hunker down in Baghdad? Is that where we're heading? That, that's in fact um, exactly where we are. Um, I was in Baghdad a number of weeks ago, and the American embassy uh, in the green zone, which is itself isolated, the American embassy is also isolated within the green zone with diplomats who never get out of that large compound. Um, and have to rely on other Western diplomats to keep them up to date on what's going on in in Iraq. Um, it is we we don't we've spent enormous resources in Iraq, but we don't have the means uh, to really understand what's going on there because it's uh, dangerous for American diplomats to go out, and uh, we don't have a mm-hmm. political strategy or an interest in, in helping Iraq back here in Washington. Uh, everybody wants to turn the page and make it old news. Stephen Cook, thank you so much with the Council on Foreign Relations. John Farrell, long ago and far away, there was an economist who chiseled out exquisite detail on the American consumer. And people simply said, who is this Ellen Zetner? It was that good. It stuck out like a sore thumb. Well, we know it now. She's we with us now. Name. Ellen Zentner, Morgan Stanley Chief, <clears throat> U.S. economist. Ellen, great to have you with us, especially on Payrolls Friday. Let's just walk through the headline numbers, shall we? What are you looking for in 40 minutes' time? Uh, so we've got uh, much higher than consensus expectation, 210 on the headline. That's going to uh, – and then I think consensus is around 160 now. Uh, but, you know, we're pretty optimistic in what we're seeing in the indicators that we tend to track and use when modeling out what the payroll report will hold. I think the unemployment rate is going to remain at 3.5% with a nice blend of strong headline growth, but more movement back into the labor market in those prime working age uh, uh, areas. And then average hourly earnings increasing by 0.3% this in in December month to month. Um, But the year over year, uh, sort of flubs, comes down just a little bit, rounds down. So, you know, what you've got is a combination of strong jobs, steady unemployment, tame wage growth, and all that would reinforce the Fed's judgment that monetary policy is in a good place. And then let's get a little bit more detail on that. What underpins, the indicators that underpin your optimism, what are they? So, you know, the conference board survey, uh, consumer confidence survey, has a lot of good meat in it about how consumers or how households feel about the labor market. Um, And those labor market conditions metrics are at their best level since 2015 and just continue to get better. Now, that can sometimes just tell you headline job growth is strong. It can sometimes just tell you that more people came into the labor market because they're more optimistic. Uh, and so uh, if, it's the, if it's the former, then that does translate well into a strong headline uh, uh, job count. But I'm telling you, households tend to be pretty savvy when it comes to how they feel about 
the labor market. They're the ones out there beating the pavement looking for jobs, and they're the ones answering these surveys. And so that can be a pretty powerful indication within a forecast. Uh, Jobless claim is still very low, uh, so separations remain low. Um, still no indication that businesses are starting to broadly lay off workers. Right. Where where we aren't really good uh, at, at predicting is if, if there was a, some sort of uh, halt, temporary or otherwise, in hiring plans in the month of December. And that's, that's the part of this uh, puzzle that we're not very good at predicting. Ellen, there was a story on the Bloomberg yesterday uh, that Taco Bell is now offering $100,000 salaries to restaurant managers to attract and retain biz, uh, correct talent. And I'm wondering when we're going to start seeing some of the headlines bear out in the numbers that we are getting in terms of just how much wages are increasing. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, it, it may start to bring up um, average weekly, uh, average hourly earnings for supervisory workers. That's really where earnings have flatlined. Whereas the year-over-year growth for non-supervisory workers has been increasing. So not for management at Taco Bell, but the employees, the other employees at Taco Bell. Um, that story yesterday um, was really fun to pass around between us and our, our equity analysts covering restaurants. Uh, and that's one area where our equity strategist and our restaurant analyst, John Glass, has been pointing out that margin pressures uh, are um, pretty acute in the industry and something that a lot of these um, service sector industries yeah. um, are experiencing. This goes to your economic analysis over the last number of years, Ellen Zetner. How many times a week do you eat at Taco Bell? Uh, I used to love Mexican pizza, but that was when I was in my early 20s and I could actually burn it off. <laughs> and that, I can see you managing the Taco Bell. That doesn't work on the Corona option oh, that really? she had going. It's a Texas, it's a Texas girl, the Corona thing she had going before Corona was in. What I will tell you is that when I first read that article, the the first thing that came to mind was in fi- in finance, we already compete a lot with tech now for talent. Uh, and I thought to myself, now we have to f- compete with Taco Bell. I mean, that's a pretty handsome salary. Apparently that's, that's so. That CFA at Taco Bell really, <laughs> really gets it Apparently done. Apparently so. We shouldn't joke about it. And then just a final question for you on the unemployment rate. Bit of a debate within the team at Bloomberg Economics about just how low that can go. Bear in mind that the Fed has struggled consistently through this cycle to, to work out how low the unemployment rate can go. Can we go much lower this year, Alan? I think we can. I mean, we could possibly get to 3.3, three, three, um, But the question is, what is the magic level that kicks off this sort of kink in the wage Phillips curve that gets wages to accelerate even further? I mean, the argument that the Fed is right and it's around four and we're below that, uh, you know, you can see in the wage data. Again, if you slice the wage data and you're just looking at non-supervisory workers, that's up much faster on a year-over-year basis than all workers, which includes non-supervisory. It's, it's basically my, my level. We've stagnated. We've stagnated. A lot of that is due to demographics, uh, dragging down those year-over-year gains. I mean, at some point, and Tom, you can probably appreciate this, we peak. We peak and our year-over-year rate of wage growth flattens out. Uh, and so, um, you know, there's a good deal of those folks still in the labor market. And so yeah. no matter how low the unemployment rate goes, I mean, it, it's uh, you get acceleration in some parts of the labor market, but not all. Ellen, thank you so much. Ellen Zentner with Morgan Stanley looking towards that call. Randall Krosner, the former governor 
of the Federal Reserve System. He, of course, holds court at the Booth School in Chicago uh, with Rajan and the rest with a great acuity on the total financial system, Global Wall Street, and how it does fold into this labor economy. Governor Krosner, thank you so much for joining us today. Just simply to begin, is this a fully employed America? Uh, well, uh there's a lot of debate over exactly what full employment means, but man, when you've got a 50-year low in the unemployment rate, uh, high labor force participation, I think by any means it's uh, it's pretty fully employed. It's pretty fully employed, and we see a statistic of 3.5% on the unemployment rate. And there's lots of other things. Underemployment rate comes in to a better number as well. Is it? Do you look at it as an aggregated labor economy, or like our listeners, are there partitions to the economy of the haves doing really well and maybe an underemployed or lesser employed group, and even a part of America that's simply not participating? Which is it? Well, there certainly are um, parts that have done better and uh, parts that haven't done as well. But if you look, for example, at the um, uh, uh, breakdown the, uh, the labor market into people who don't have a uh, uh, high school degree or no more than a high school degree and people who have a, uh, a bachelor's degree, there's actually been a, a greater fall in the unemployment rate for those with lower skills, uh, with lower educational achievement. and uh, And so... They have actually done relatively well in this market. That's often uh, often forgotten. That doesn't mean that the super high end hasn't also done very well. But if you look broadly at um, people with uh, low educational achievement versus people with relatively high educational achievement, it's low achievers who are actually done um, uh, seen more. Uh, uh, more decline in the unemployment rate. Randall, just to get some perspective here, so wages rose at the weakest annual pace since 2018, and that comes even with the unemployment rate at 3.5%. That is at the half-century low. Right now, I'm very interested in the market response. You're seeing equity futures uh, gain and actually build on future gains uh, that we saw earlier today. You're seeing bond yields, particularly on the long end, go further lower. I'm trying to understand what this means. Is it basically that this just encourages the Fed to stay on hold and possibly cut rates, and that's giving equity uh, traders a boost? Or does this signal that they're going to have uh, less pressure on their uh, on their, uh, on their their profits based on the fact that they're not necessarily paying that much more to their workers? Could be a little bit of both. My guess is it's more about the Fed, because I think the, uh, uh, the markets tend to focus a lot on what these numbers mean for the future path of uh, Fed, uh, Fed rate changes. And I think you're exactly right. Less inflation pressure. Um, yeah. The Fed is more likely to either stay on hold or move down rather than move up. I mean, John, this goes to your conversation with Lawrence Kudlow coming up at the 9 o'clock hour, not only the challenge of wage growth in America, but buried in our, our Bloomberg uh, story here, the job formation of 2011, and we're back there, 2.11 million across all of the 12 months of the year. That from Reed Pickard of Bloomberg News. The slowest payrolls growth since 2011 at 2.11 million, as Tom points out, Professor. Your thoughts on that? Is that just a sign that we have got to full employment that payroll growth will mature, it will slow down, but not necessarily a signal of anything too much dramatic, too much more dramatic than that. I think that's right. I mean, um, it, it's not like we've uh, fallen off the cliff in uh, in the growth of wage, uh, in the growth of wages, or in the growth of employment. It certainly stepped down. Um, but when you're, at, you know, after a full decade of job growth, after on the order of nearly 20 million jobs uh, being uh, being added. Um, that's a uh, that's a pretty good context. 
and it just becomes harder and harder because there aren't as many people who are potentially ready to be employed. So you're naturally going to see a slowdown in, uh, in job growth. I'm going to talk to Larry Cudlow about this a little bit later, and I'm interested to see how we'll spin the conversation. Professor, does 2% GDP growth get it done? We're seeing consumer confidence at multi-decade highs. We see an employed America, companies still adding to the payroll, even though we've gone through some real tension with a big trade partner over the last 12 months, and we've generated growth of in and around 2%. Does 2% get it done? I guess it depends who you ask uh, get it done. My guess is uh, my good friend uh, Larry will say it's not enough and that they, uh, the administration would like to see more and think that we can achieve more with uh, further regulatory reforms and, and tax reforms. But if you look at the underlying uh, fundamentals, the underlying uh, demographics, that's probably roughly around what we can achieve. Uh, and if we want to continue to grow at relatively low uh, inflation, and in a study way, that's probably the area we're going to be in, unless there is some quite major change that affects productivity that could then kick up the growth rate. Right. I want to go back to something that you were saying, and given your experience on the Fed, I'm trying to understand the market's interpretation of the central bank here. Uh, the idea yep. that the Fed is more incentivized to potentially even cut rates further in the light of the lack of momentum that we're seeing in the job uh, in the jobs market. Do you think that's justified? I mean, in fairness, we would expect to see job gains uh, sort of ease off at this point in the cycle. I think the key thing that the Fed is looking at now is um, is inflation. Inflation is still below its uh, 2% target. Historically, if you had seen this kind of labor market, you would be seeing Fed, uh, you would see U.S. inflation significantly above that, uh, that 2% target. And the Fed is haunted by the specter of Japan. Um, Japan has had a low unemployment rate, um, and uh, the Japanese uh, cut interest rates in negative territory, have purchased an enormous number of assets, far more than the, the Fed did relative to the size of the economy, and they still can't get inflation anywhere close to uh, their 2% target. So the Fed wants to stay ahead of the curve, and so even before inflation starts to fall, they may want to... Uh, uh, fall significantly, they might, might want to cut rates uh, again, not because they're focusing on the unemployment rate, but because they're focusing on the un, uh, the inflation rate. This is an incredibly important statement, Governor, the idea that we are haunted by Japan. We have a dynamism, as Ned Phelps would say, that is extraordinary. I think of the spirit of your Chicago, of clearing markets and moving forward. If we're haunted by Japan, What's the run rate of our animal spirit? What's the run rate of nominal GDP? <laughs> Where are we back to? The 50s, 1947? Are we back to the, the, the lethargy of another time and place? Well, let's, I, uh, lethargy, I think, is not really quite fair because it would be that, you know, we're, we have inflation between, let's say, around 1.5% and growth around uh, 2%, so that adds up to about 3.5%. But when you have the unemployment rate at such a low level that you have starting to see some reasonable uh, job gains, uh, 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 wage gains overall, not gangbusters, but uh, but reasonable, I think it's a little bit unfair to say that's lethargic. Professor, I just want to get to the end game, if, uh, if we can. Late cycle is what many people refer to this particular part of the expansion, the recovery, the last 10 years. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, making some headlines with our colleague David Westin. Uh, that will air on Wall Street Week beginning at 6 p.m. Eastern today. Larry said the following, that he thinks it's pretty unlikely 
that the Federal Reserve can respond to the next recession because usually you would need five percentage points. Rates right now are below two. He doesn't believe QE and that kind of stuff is worth anything like another three percentage points. What's your assessment? I think the Fed is in a more challenging position than it has been in the past. But that's one of the reasons why they try to be so proactive to, to keep the economy moving along. I mean, it really is quite amazing to see how long the growth has, has occurred given all of the uh, geopolitical risks, geopolitical challenges, trade wars, other things. And we've had some positives on economic policy. I think the, uh, the tax reforms have been helpful in maintaining the, uh, uh, the economic momentum. So that's, uh, the Fed is only one piece of the puzzle, uh, but it's been an important piece. But that does mean that the Fed, as well as other central banks around the world, have less of the traditional tools than they once had. But at least the Fed has more tools than almost any other central bank, because most other major central banks are in negative territory or in much lower right. interest rates. Let's so, come. are oh. we as good as the past? No. But are we better than others? Yes. Randall Crosser, thank you so much. I'm pleased to say we're joined by Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council Director. He joins us from outside of the White House. Larry, always great to catch up with you. This is the last time I'm going to say this. So happy new year. We are done now. January 10th. After that, I don't think we say it anymore. So, Larry, good to see you. Let's start with wage growth. Just south of 3 percent, 2.9 percent. Haven't seen these kind of numbers since the summer of 2018. Any reason to be concerned about that, Larry? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of ways to measure wage growth besides average hourly earnings. Measures like total compensation have generally been rising at uh, 3.5%, maybe 4%. And it's still the story, even with today's numbers, uh, which I think were very strong. I want to get to today's numbers. But the fact remains that the production workers and the service workers' gains in wages continue to outstrip the gains of their managers. With the stock market rally, the gains in net worth, we've had fabulous household net worth increases, um, I don't know, around $10, $12 trillion in recent years. Most of the, half of those gains have gone uh, to people at the bottom 50%. So, no, I don't see any problem at all. Disposable income after inflation rising beautifully at around 3.5% very strong. The whole report, I mean, we always set expectations. We measure it against this market forecast and that market forecast. But look, you're running 145,000 jobs. That's a great number. Other point, Jonathan, is the unemployment rate is 3.5%. It remains at a 50 or 51-year low. That is a remarkable number with no inflation. And when you look at unemployment, you've got to look at the household survey, which very few people do. But you had a 267,000 gain in the household survey, which skews to the smaller, younger businesses to show the vitality uh, of the economy. So I really think this is a strong report. And I, one last point. You all were talking about the stock market. And Mohammed um, uh, El-Aryan, who's a very bright fellow, was talking about the resiliency and dynamism of the American economy. I just want to add that point as a generic point, if you will. The, the huge increase in the stock market, I have to believe, is a signal of improving confidence 
among consumers and businesses, and I think it's pointing towards even faster growth in the next year. There's some hope that business confidence picks up once the United States and China sits around a table and signs that document next week. So let's talk about that document. Some confusion in the last month, Larry, about whether this has been translated or not. Secretary Mnuchin said on December 19th that it's already on paper, it's already translated. Then Peter Navarro said at the end of the month, all we've waited on is for the Chinese deal is to translate the English version into the Chinese version. Can you just confirm that we've both got this in Chinese and English ahead of next week? Uh, Yes. Look, I I spoke to Ambassador Lighthizer last night to uh, reconfirm all this. Um, The translation has been authenticated. The Chinese are coming, as you probably know. Vice Premier Liu He will be here next week, uh, well, for two days. The signing ceremony will be on January 15th. I think it's a Wednesday. President Trump will sign. Vice Premier Liu He will sign. Uh, there'll be celebratory dinner and lunches surrounding those signatures. Everything is completely in place. I've seen some of these rumors. Uh, let me just tell you, everything is completely in place. The translation worked. The signing ceremony worked. This is an historic, remarkable deal. And the president was talking about it yesterday yeah. uh, when he unveiled his uh, environmental deregulation. Maybe we'll get to that as pro-growth. But uh, on this point, I mean, we really got a lot in phase one, a lot in phase one. What the percentage is that I don't know. It could be 40 percent. It could be 50 percent. And some people are saying, well, gosh, we left the tough stuff for something called phase two. And I want to just quote Ambassador Lighthizer uh, from our conversation last night. He's just such a wonderful fellow, and I always check in before I come on the air with him. You know, nobody ever thought we'd get phase one. No one has ever done phase one before. There is nothing like this in trade history. So that the importance and significance of phase one is enormous. And that's the tough part. And we'll get to the rest of it, but we covered a lot of ground. And it is, Jonathan, as you and I have discussed, this is a pro-growth trade deal. Assuming that the Chinese comply with the conditions and so forth, it has the capacity to add at least a half a point of growth in the next year, if not more. Well, Larry, I'd love to be able to verify everything you've just said, but I can't because I've not seen the document. So give me some detail. It's 86 pages well, long. I understand that much. Let's start with commodities. What has been agreed? The number, the time horizon, the details. Well, I, I can't go through every detail, but I, I'll do my best. Look, the, first of all, the, the fact sheet in the document will be released, according to Ambassador Lighthizer, on uh, the Wednesday, January 15th. Um, so that's point number one. Uh, point number two, uh, in general terms, uh, on the commodity side, In terms of purchases, that is increased U.S. exports and increased Chinese purchases, um, the number 200 billion over the first two years is uh, still in play. That's very much what the targeting is. That includes, by the way, a number of areas, uh, pork, soybeans, energy, wheat, manufacturers, it's across the board. And in addition just to the purchases, there's a lot of market opening activity, uh, they will allow us to trade or sell them 
uh, air in commodity areas uh, and finished good areas that prior to that we couldn't sell. So there's market opening and there will be purchasing. And, and, and look, yeah. the, the building blocks of these chapters are still in place. You know, we got tremendous amount of progress on intellectual property and the avoidance of theft and counterfeiting. Tremendous amount. Uh, financial services, not only market opening, Jonathan, but you, you know, ownership, U.S. ownership of financial companies, currency stability. Uh, and with respect to the forced transfer of technology, some progress has been made there, too. More will spill over into phase two. So I could go through lots of details. It's not all inside my head. It'll be released I understand next, that, Larry. Uh, next totally week. Totally get that. I just want to keep it focused on one particular area, if we can, on the commodity side of things. You mentioned yes. $200 well, billion yeah. over two years. Rest, assu- rest assured. Well, let me, let me mean, just he, get the question, Larry, the, just quickly. The proof of the pudding. The most ever sorry, was back in 2013. It was $29 billion. The biggest year of imports of agricultural and agriculture-related goods from the United States into China was $29 billion, and that was back in 2013. I'm just wondering how we get anywhere near 200 over two years. Well, we will exceed that. I mean, again, the volume of purchases, the category of commodity purchases, and the market opening to permit... Uh, Uh, new items to be sold has all been greatly expanded, okay, greatly expanded. And I think here, too, one of the goodwill gestures that helped pave the way for the successful negotiation of this great phase one deal was the fact that the Chinese all along, as we were discussing, uh, picked up their purchases. All right. Now, goodwill is goodwill, but it, you know, indicates seriousness and you're already building yeah. into these numbers. So I can't predict to the dime. Nobody can. But um, those are the targets. And again, I think it's part of this phase one uh, that will be enforced. Larry, we're we going to get rushed along. I know we are. So I've got to keep enforced. jumping in and forgive me. I've got to keep coming back with okay. questions. Enforcement. What's the mechanism? What's the time horizon to evaluate whether the Chinese are following through on what they sign next week? Is it monthly? Is it quarterly? Is it annually? How's this going to be done? uh, Again, the the specific details will be laid out. But essentially, Jonathan, it's a multi-layered process. Complaints complaints now can be brought, by the way. American companies can bring a complaint uh, to U.S. embassy staff. And then the two sides have a series of levels, I think two or three, probably three levels, and they will sift through the evidence and the argumentation, and it'll eventually rise to the principal's level if it's not solved. And look, if, if these uh, disputes are not resolved, all right, then we will take proportionate action. We still will leave, as you know, uh, over 250, nearly 300 billion of tariffs. So there, there could be proportionate action if that. But the, the resolution process dispute resolution process is multi-layered and um, we will see if the Chinese accommodate what they have agreed to. We made progress on China quite clearly. Let's talk about Europe to wrap things up, Larry. Back in November, we were expecting an evaluation from this administration under Section 232 report on auto imports, specifically out of Europe. We heard nothing. Where are we with that? Uh, Well, of course, um, USCR presented its uh, views on that uh, to President Trump, and so did the Commerce Department, and he has taken that into consideration, and um, as you can see, no actions have been taken. 
So to be clear, that's done. Dusted, Larry. We move on. There will be no auto tariffs on Europe, as far as the eyes can see, in your own words. As far as the eye can see is fair enough, but this is a presidential decision. It's not a Cudlow decision, and it depends on a number of factors. We are in constant discussions with Europe. But has he made that, uh, deci- for- has he made that decision, Larry? Well, as I said, it's, as you can see, the report was presented and no action was taken. I can't say that's forever. Uh, we're in constant bargaining and negotiating. And in fact, additional EU-USTR trade negotiations are going to be occurring, I think, either next week or the week after. Okay. Uh, Mr. Hogan from the EU is coming over here to talk to us. So we'll see. But thus far, no action has been taken. Larry, phase two, final question for you. How long is this going to take? Oh, that's very difficult. The president uh, talked briefly about it yesterday. Um, You know, one point here, apart from the timing of phase two, phase two is going to depend a lot on how phase one goes. And again, if the phase one deal is implemented, you know, and there'll always be uh, arguments and some disputes, but with a minimal, a minimal of disputes, uh, I think that will make it easier to get to phase two uh, and beyond. But in terms of a timetable, uh, the president, I believe yesterday, said he was in no rush. It might take the rest of the year. It could happen after the election. So that's what, that's, uh, what his view is, and uh, his is really the, the only view that counts. Let's not forget, Jonathan, I know we're all pressed for time, but, you know, the Chinese deal will add to growth. It's already helping confidence and certainty. You can see it in the stock market and so forth. Let's not forget USMCA, yep. which is another path-breaking deal. And when you look at the economic estimates, uh, the midpoint of the range of those estimates, that's three-quarters of a percent of added GDP with uh, 350-some-odd thousand new jobs and a lot of new direct investments. And let's also not forget, please, we had about a $40 billion deal negotiated with Japan that uh, covered e-commerce and agriculture. Every single one of these, these are path-breaking deals. These are historic deals, in my judgment, from a president who was criticized as uh, someone who didn't want it. Look what's happened. His negotiating toughness has paid off. And they're all pro-growth deals, every single one of these things. So I think the outlook uh, for American prosperity, Americans are working, Jonathan. Americans are working and Americans are getting paid. And the stock market is telling me their retirement nest eggs are growing rapidly. Perhaps not as rapidly as the president suggested the other day, but we'll let that slide, shall we, Larry? Larry, we appreciate your time, as always, and your insight and perspective on Jobs Day. Larry Kudlow there, National Economic Council Director. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.